Movies by Minute Project number five. It's Silverado this time. That's no jive. By Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids, because here we go. Welcome back to Silverado. This is Silverado Minute. And old my old man Sully on my porch. And saying, get on, get. We got ourselves a podcast here. That's right. I'm speaking like a prospector right now. Uh, hey, welcome back to Silverado Minute. This is the podcast where each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan directed Western Silverado. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host for this week, and this is my last episode of this week, so we're going to have ourselves some fun here. Uh, my name is Paul Francis Sullivan. You can call me Sully. I'm the host of the Lockdown MLB podcast. In the past, I was the host of the Bull Durham Minute, several other things. I've been producing on some TV shows, The Daily Show for a little bit, and wrote for Dennis Miller way back when, produced Bonnie Hunt show, favorite TV show I ever had. I'm now teaching. And I still write, and I still do all sorts of creative things, and um, and we're now doing minute sixty five. And my my co host for today, once again, my my partner in film watching in high school, uh, my other partner in film watching in high school. But I'm going to show you the main difference between brother Scott Pomerink and my dear friend Greg Lee, who's back for the show. How you doing, Greg? Sully. That's right. Um, when we we had Scott on, and Scott and I used to love to watch like old classic films. We'd go see him at the Stanford together. We saw lots of the art house films that were played at the Guild in the park where there would be revivals. Like we saw the revival of Spartacus and All About Eve, and we saw uh, like Cinema Paradiso and Koyana Scotsi and all these great uh, indie films that were coming out in the uh, the nineteen. 19- 80s, the late 80s, early 90s, before Miramax just got a stranglehold on indie cinema. And there was a lot of really fun, interesting films. Some of them were Miramax, but it was before they turned into the kind of the indie factory where they just made mainstream films disguised as indie films. Right. Uh, I, I saw Sex, Lies, and Videotape with Scott. Um, we sought out the best films to see. You and I... <laughs> Conversely, sought out the biggest piles of crap ever to be vomited onto a screen. Let's go over some of the films we saw together, shall we? Spaced Invaders, Mm. Robot Jocks. Spaced Invaders uh, with the alien uh, who sounded like jack nicholson that was that was what would pass for a running gag in that period in the 80s they were like the alien sounds like jack nicholson yeah why i have no idea bird on a wire um how much garbage we saw and then oh i mean we got we got uh nearly thrown out of robot jocks right yeah I, i we uh, I talked about that when Grant Kaloff was on the Bull Durham Minute, that we saw this this film called Robot Jocks, which was unbelievably terrible. And we were just mystery science theatering it like crazy to the point where the manager of the theater that we saw that in Mountain View, California, uh, was going to throw us out. And I convinced the manager to let us stay. Yes, you and did. Said, and that nearly ended my friendship with Grant Kaloff. <laughs> He was angry. He wanted to get tossed. He wanted to get get out. He said, we're done watching this. This is garbage. What are we doing? (laughs) I forgot about that part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We saw so much junk. All the Ernest movies. Ernest goes to jail. Ernest goes to camp. Um, Yeah. And and because there was a theater in Belmont that you could see a film for a buck and a half. Right. that That theater is now a rock climbing gym. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. wow! And and, and That's when we were there, unfortunate. It was the Belmont, and it, you would look up at what's at the Belmont, and you and me, Jordan Wexelman. I know Corey Mahegan came with us a few times. Yeah, you know, you would see this crap, but it only cost a buck, right? And so and it was. 
to be clear, it, it was big studio crap. Like, this yeah, wasn't yeah. low-end crap. This was where the movies would go after their theatrical run had basically trickled out and they were just trying to squeeze the last few drops out of the theatrical yeah. market. They'd send it to the dollar cinema. So you'd see these just terrible bird on a wire. wire. You know, they spent probably 80 million bucks on that movie back in 1986 or seven, you know, a massive movie. You're seeing it for a buck because it's trash and has no prospects on home video. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, it, look, at I love watching Mystery Science Theater, and it's my great pride that my kids not only love the Joel era Mystery Science Theater, they sing along with the opening credits. Oh, wow. My son, Aiden, for his birthday, a t-shirt of Joel in the box silhouette wow. that he loves wearing. We just watched Time and the Apes and Mitchell, um, oh. and uh, they, loved, uh, they loved Fugitive Alien. But I think the one they loved the most was Bride of the Monster, the Ed Wood film. Um, but there's something about we sought out like mainstream Hollywood films that were junk. Yes. You know, because when someone, especially because I wound up directing an indie film and, you know, just getting that made. Right. is an accomplishment if you're an independent filmmaker. So it never felt right to completely trash a low budget film that somehow right. by miracle got into a movie theater. Right. But when it's a film where millions of dollars were spent, movie stars were in them. Yes, like there was probably cocaine all over the set. Oh, my know? God. What, <laughs> there are some films where cocaine should have been credited as an associate producer. <laughs> you know, uh, cocaine so presents. Oh, like, like, okay, I'll give you an exa- like a, a, a perfect example of a film that we saw trashed and it was a huge budget film with massive movie stars and it was days of thunder with tom cruise remember that that film is crap and that's the film that robert duvall kidman's breakout robert duvall made that movie instead of the godfather part three oh because they met his per diem that's why I, I kind of now I to be fair in retrospect that was probably a smart decision. Well, I mean, but you know what? There, there are some films which I call "What the hell are we doing?" movies, and like The Sting too. Like yeah, The Sting right. starred Redford in his absolute apex. Paul right. Newman, who is just incredible. Uh, George Roy Hill, a very powerful director. You know, coming you know not too far removed from Butch Cassidy. And then the Sting 2 is, comes out, and they can't get Newman. They can't get Redford. Robert Shaw is dead. And so they cast Oliver Reed. Okay, not okay. If they can't get Robert Shaw, get Oliver Reed. Um, instead of Paul Newman, they got Jackie Gleason. <laughs> wait, but wait. Instead of Redford, they got Mac Davis. And at one point, they're like, it should, I could, I would imagine we're on the set. That, okay, okay, we're ready. First shot, Sting 2. Okay, speed, sound, speed, roll camera, speed, market, Sting 2, scene, scene 1, shot 1, and cut. What are we doing? <laughs> Why are, are we doing this? You know what, everyone, everyone, you're going to be on the payroll till we get you another job. We're very sorry. This should not be made. You're all going to get work. We're going to pay you this. We're going to go out of our way to get you employed on the many films that are being shot here on the Universal lot. This film should not be made. Likewise, they waited forever to make Godfather 3. Coppola right. needed the dough, and right. Paramount said, "Go do it for us." I said, right. Okay, we pony up the money to get Coppola, pony up the money to get Al Pacino, pony up the money to get Diane Keaton. But Duval said, "No, you're, you haven't met my quote." He said that. Right. He said, "Everyone's doing it for the money, so I want to do it for. I want to be paid as much as Al." Right. And they said no. I said, "All right, I'll go make a race car movie with Tom Cruise." Like call, he called their bluff because. Right. Plot was going to be revolving around Tom Hagen and Michael. Oh, right. And, you know, instead they created this new character with Eli 
wow like but it's like gee whiz i wonder if he's the bad guy this guy we've never seen before right. um, but you know it was it was going to be you know tom hagan betraying michael which is hinted at slightly in godfather 2 it was going to be pretty cool and he didn't do it so they rewrote the script i said okay is duval in the film no no uh what about winona Ryder? well she backed out and so he's cast his daughter Okay, well, who do we have playing the lawyer? There's got to be a lawyer. Oh, we got George Hamilton. George Hamilton was available, and he did. Okay, so George, instead of Robert Duvall, we have George Hamilton. Yeah, that's what we have. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, roll camera. Okay, sound, speed. Cut! What are we doing? How much does he want? Oh, another great what are we doing movie is Caddyshack 2. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> which we saw. I think we we saw that in the theater. We did. Didn't we? we did. Yes, yeah. we did. So the, the Dan Aykroyd's lowest moment in his life in a of world course. that includes Blues Brothers two thousand. Yeah. <laughs> nothing but trouble. Did we see nothing but trouble in the theaters, or did we do we draw the line there? Uh, I don't believe we got to see it in theaters when it came out. At, yes, it did. It, it was originally Valkenvania, but it never made it to the theater in that name. It was nothing but trouble. But I, I sir, uh, sir, watched the heck out of that on VHS. I'll tell okay, you. Okay, yeah, I couldn't. I think, I think we we said, come on, guys. So at yeah, so you and I loved watching bad movies, big studio bad movies. Uh, we would also have the I, the move. I still haven't heard about people doing outside of us, which I'm still proud that we uh, maybe pioneered, which is when you go to see a big studio bad movie, pay for the indie movie that's also showing at the Cineplex, we then sneak, yes. in, sneak into so they get the box office yes, dollars. Yes, yes, we we did that with Robot Shocks because there was like some – that we that was at the Mountain View Theater, but there was that's some right. kind of low budget movie, and we paid for the. We that's right. We made sure they got the box office, right? And we got to see Robot Jocks. Yes. <laughs> By the way, I just want to say um, uh, the 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 host that's going to be doing uh, the next week's minute, starting with sixty six, is Jim O'Kane, who's kind of the uh, mastermind of these group movie by minute podcast and one of the movie by minute podcasts he did which i was very very proud to be a guest on was the rocketeer minute mm. and that was actually one of my favorite movie going experiences in my life which i was with you with yep. Corey mcgegan grant kaloff i think jordan wexman was with us and we went to see that movie thinking we were going to trash a big budget walt disney movie because i i was not yep. i thought it looked terrible and we all Loved it. We thought it was a, such a surprise that we yeah. thought we were going to see garbage. And instead we saw a really fun, wonderfully made adventure film. And that, that, that I think that just got overshadowed by Terminator 2, which yes. came out like the week later. And so therefore suddenly everything else in the theater was like, forget it. It was a Terminator yeah. summer. But <laughs> I, 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 so many people, like Jim O'Kane got so many people, who just to be in the pockets, including got uh, Billy Campbell to do a bunch of his episodes. And oh, tell, wow. Oh, yeah. Got to listen to that. Got to listen to that old uh, subscribe to that because it uh, Billy Campbell did like you know, 14, 15 episodes telling, what? telling, oh, that was that was a really cold day. And Alan Arkin was so funny that day, like all these great memories. And so, wow. yeah, check that out. Hey, let's go. Uh, but let's check out Silverado because there's a lot of stuff to talk about on here. Um this minute, which we're doing, uh, opens with Cobb asking Emmett if he killed Murdero McKendrick and ends with Cobb throwing Kelly out of the Morning Star. Um, let's, uh, you know, we're going back to that great shot of Dennehy, peak Dennehy, in that great red uh, jacket, the yellow, um, you know, the yellow vest. This was a period of time if you were heavy set. That was kind of a status symbol because it meant you were well fed and you were yes. wealthy. And so he fits that 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 persona perfectly. Like he's the fat cat of the town. And he calls out, we've just been a lot of friendly exchanges, and he calls out Emmett for killing Murdo McKendrick. And you in the single shot, and it, we cut to a kind of a awkward single shot of Emmett, like, oh, I didn't want to bring this up. And <laughs> <laughs> and Emmett very timid in this scene. Yeah. Looking up. And um, and when he says he, he was going to shoot my brother in the back. And the, one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is the reaction. 
as we cut back to Dennehy, kind of looks up and with a grin, he says, Oh, we can't be having that, can we? <laughs> so much behind, so much just subtext in that. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, I guess you, you had to do that, huh? All right, yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect it's, it's the way he gets he's able to express menace while smiling and being the most likable buddy, buddy guy. But you're like, this guy can kill all of these people. You know, yeah. it, it's such a, uh, wonderful combination of charm and menace. <laughs> yeah. And okay. Then we cut to Academy Award winner, Linda Hunt walking in sitting down with a little bit of nerves on her face. Like, okay, she knows something's up with Kelly because she was right. doing the book. Now you see who Kelly is played by Academy Award nominee, Richard Jenkins. One of the great, that guys. That's uh, right. A billion movies got nominated for the film, the visitor, which is actually a fine movie. And then was in the shape of water. Um, it's just been a quadrillion films, including this one usually playing guys with completely nondescript features and faces. And this is just an amazing dressing down and humiliation of this character. That yeah. He's doing it, doing it with the charm. Just want you to, to be here where I give the your job to Peyton. Yeah. Great, great cut to Klein sort of. Which also, up. also uh, shows you his, his, uh, uh, real enjoyment of uh, cruelty, yeah. you know, where he, it's not enough. He loves to smile and then just stick the dagger in you. And we'll, and we'll, and we'll make humiliate you in front of people. He doesn't, right. doesn't care that this is going to, this is something that should happen behind closed doors, confronting him right. about embezzlement. I'm going to give the job to someone else. He's doing it in the middle of the goddamn bar. Yeah. And he enjoys being cruel, and he just gets just an amazing amount of joy out of it. That's more the point is the cruelty than anything else, you know. Now there's now along the way, and again, this is a scene where it's beautifully shot by John Bailey, you know, and obviously every actor in this scene is super talented. Um, Klein doesn't say a word has those amazingly expressive eyes. And when he's like, I'm getting the job, there's a little bit of, oh, wait, I didn't know that was, this was happening. Right. Uh, and like, I guess I really am linked with this guy. Uh, and right. I'm, and there's also a little bit of like, uh, I'm not a collaborator on this. <laughs> I'm, this is right. not my doing. Um, also Linda Hunt, obviously great actress. And you can just see, and you, and we see later in the next minute that she's a, you know, she doesn't, she's not a fan of Kelly necessarily because this whole arrangement of doing the bar with Kelly is really not her, her choice, but she also doesn't want the guy dead. She doesn't, right. and she, you know, she doesn't, she's looking after him a little bit. So there's a little bit of her like, okay, we were going to like, do you want know it is? It's kind of like, all right, we were going to have this conversation. We didn't, I didn't want to have it here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is not how this is not how I wanted this dealt with. You right. know? Exactly. He and and but that's that's who he but, is. Yeah. There there is no other way he would ever dream of dealing with this than to make a show out of it and really, you know, just insult this guy and denigrate him. But but the other great moments is that's enough talking. And then he kind of bef he kind of has before he before he punches Richard Jenkins in the gut, he looks back specifically to Scott Glenn, to Emmett. Right. With a little grin on his face. And then delivers the haymaker right to the belly. And they, and so there's a grin like, going, look what I'm going to do. Right. I got an eye on you. Just keep an eye of who you're dealing with here. Keep it. Keep in mind, I'm the sheriff. I'm the law, and I'll do this. Right. And they punch. Of course, he. You know, Kelly gets knocked to the ground. You know, gets punched in the gut, and you know is doubled over. And then they cut back to Emmett Scott Glenn, and um, he's uh, has this look on his face, like going, "What am I dealing with here? This is not. 
you know, there's, I mean, there's, there's so much that is said. Yeah. I mean, Scott, Scott Glenn's look is so he's, he's just got the flinty, you know, speaking of the, um, you know, the, the amazing cinematography. I love how they light Scott Glenn in this with the big light reflections in his eyes to just really drive home his, uh, those eyelights really draw you in and draw you into that flinty sort of rugged impassiveness but there is a lot behind going on behind the scenes in Scott Glenn <laughs> in this scene. And so it's both Scott Glenn's great performance and also the lighting where they go, you know what, let's put these big lights in his eyes and show off that sort of roiling intensity. And, and let me just, let's just remember as we're breaking this down a minute at a time, let's remember in context what we saw in the scene just before we saw the men that Dennehy works with killing Ezra. But in terms of cutting to people's faces and expression, we didn't cut to Danny Glover's right. expression because we knew what is happening there. Right. But here silently, this scene could have been played in a long take, right? In a long shot of him dressing down Kelly, punching him in the gut and then throwing him out the saloon door. But by cutting to, Linda Hunt, Kevin Klein, and Scott Glenn at those specific moments. They right. are those are again motivated edits that yes. show Kevin Klein's like, oh, I'm not I'm I'm and that that specific motivated edit right here to Scott Glenn is the edit that says the message is being delivered to right. him. Yes. And he understands the message is being delivered. And he is clocking it, and we are, uh, you know, he. We don't know what his reaction to this message will be, but this is. I am delivering a message, and this cut to him is here is the message being delivered. <laughs> and also, why is it being done now in the bar? Because he was. It was not clear that he was going to do this at this moment when he walked in. He was introduced, right? As like, no, now's the time to do it, right? And because. Not he's going to humiliate Richard Jenkins anyway. What he's going to offer it to Kevin the the job to to Peyton anyway, uh, and Linda Hunt's going to watch it anyway. Right. He wants Emmett to see this. Yes. Say this. I'm in charge, and this is what I'll do. And I'm punching you as much as I'm punching this guy. Right. If you if you cross me, I'll do this to a guy who I who I know. Right. And so <laughs> don't think I'll, th and that's why he looks at him first. And then, well, he sees, he's introduced, he figures out who Scott Glenn is. Like, here's what we're going to do. Let me show you what you're up against here. Right. You're in, you're in my town now. This and is also, a, this is a you're my also, town. he makes sure to do it right next to Kevin Klein so he can drive a wedge. As you were saying, Dennehy's character's entire approach is to suck in Kevin Klein's character as if it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to be working together, right? And so when he sees the two of those guys together, he's like, let me drive a wedge in between the two of them. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say to that one guy, you're on my team, which means now Scott Glenn's character will be in opposition to Kevin Klein, even though Kevin Klein doesn't want to be right. in opposition to him. But then he's setting the rules of the game very clearly and saying, you're going to be on my team and you are going to get this if you cross me. <laughs> right. And also remember when this scene began, they were in a two shot, very friendly, right. sitting together, chatting about women and everything like that. Now they're in single shots. Right. They're not a group. And of course, this is a period of the film where Peyton's loyalty, Kevin Klein's loyalty, is tested. Is he right. going to take this job that will probably make him lots of money? Remember, he's a guy who was in his underwear with nothing <laughs> and doing riding and all this stuff. And he has a chance to be in Silverado. He needs the gig. 
making a pile of money like yeah. his writing partner Cobb. And so there's part of him is like, this is a good deal for me. I don't have to ride around. I'm not going to be in the middle of the desert in my underwear. You know? So to say no to this, he can't afford to say no to it. Right. But, but also remember, you know, in the, in the minutes afterwards when Scott Glenn says, uh, you know, you used to ride with that guy. We remember that his only context of this guy is what we saw right now. He doesn't have the history that Kevin Klein does. And that's right. really driven home. Like, I'm going to drive a wedge. You know, Peyton's on my team. If you're his right. buddy, you could be his buddy. Right. But I know who you are. Right. And you better f- stay in line. Right. It's just the, it's it's a classic and just a wonderfully done version of the marking his territory scene. Yeah. Yep. Then he comes in and he just whips it out and starts marking his territory. And when he throws out, and now they do do a long take when he punches Kelly, yes. Richard Jenkins. And, and the composition goes, of that shot is beautiful when he throws him out in the street in that you're looking out. You're from inside the bar. You have the silhouettes in front of you, seated, and then Dennehy in the in the distance, and then in the far distance, the guy just writhing out in the street. And then he walks back, and now the three are all together, but he's standing over all of them. And right. it's his, I have power over all three of you. Yep. And, and he grabs the, the, the drink, and he's in control. Now, scroll back to the shot of the close-up of Scott Glenn. Can you scroll back to this close-up yep. of Scott Glenn? Okay. Yep. What is that pinwheel thing in the background? What the hell is that thing? <laughs> you, what I, I can tell you what I think it is. I think it's a zoo, a form of a zoetrope. I think you're right. I think you're right. You, you see, like, the horses on there. It's either a kind of a horse racing game, like, which one is it going to be? Or if it spins, it looks like the horse is galloping. Right, right. I, I It's got to be, yeah, the 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 latter it's got to be a film school uh set dressing reference yeah so that just, <laughs> um by the way uh before we wrap this minute up um i talked about this on the bull Durham minute when i had terry tokentines on uh this goes to give you an idea of what kind of tangents we went on um because brian den he's not in bull Durham, and yet we want to talk about brian den who i think had just died when we recorded so maybe that's oh he, okay he came up um, and we were talking about how some people were trying to bring up all these obscure theater things he was going to say, and he was saying, Tommy Boy, Cocoon, Silverado, FX, that's what people should remember him for. <laughs> um, and I told him I had, a, I had a very strange experience involving um, a very strange personal experience that Brian Dennehy was on Broadway, and I saw him when I was living in New York. I went to see him on Broadway, and he played Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. Uh, and he was Obviously, he's a great actor, and he yeah. and he was unbelievably great in the movie, uh, and the in that play in the stage park. And I had I had seen the Dustin Hoffman version of Death of a Salesman, which they did for PBS in the late. Oh 80s. right, that's and right. There was there was another film version which I can't remember if it starred maybe Frederick March, some big movie star played um, Willie Loman. But anyway, uh, I this was a um, uh, production that starred Dennehy. And I, I never made this connection before, but I'm in I'm in the Broadway you know, theater watching it, and I'd seen the play, and I know the play, and so I'm basically basically once that you're seeing what are they going to do with the role, and I was like, who is Dennehy's voice reminding me of? The rhythm of it, the cadence of it, how it went up at certain points, just the the timbre. I was like, whose voice is that? And I closed my eyes. And, and I kind of like, oh, my God, I know exactly who he sounds like. And for the rest of the play, I had a grin on my face because I said he sounds, he has the exact cadence, the exact rhythm of the voice of Jason Alexander and Seinfeld. And it's, and so I'm now just, I'm watching this brilliant actor perform one of the great plays, and I'm just envisioning George Costanza <laughs> as Willie Loman. And there's really no, it may have just it's been perfect. how he was saying it that day. And like, I mean, I watched him in this and I didn't hear Jason Alexander at all there either. I don't understand why just in this performance, if you close your eyes, that who's playing Willie Loman, 
Well, that's Jason Alexander. Maybe it, maybe it was a stunt. Denny, he just before he walked out goes, I'm doing it as uh, Jason Alexander. Or maybe like, maybe it was like maybe it was like singing in the rain, like he was just mouthing it, and Jason Alexander was yeah. behind the curtain. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, how great is Dennehy in this film? I mean, it's you, he's just he's he's subtly chewing scenery, which I love. Like it's 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 very difficult to do to subtly chew scenery where you are completely dominating a scene. And yet you're not really doing that much that's huge. I mean, yes, in this particular scene, he punches a guy, but you could do the rest of the scene without him punching the guy. And he's still menacing and with right. massive presence. And it's just, it's peak Dennehy, like you say. But beyond the fact that he doesn't get into the, the he doesn't start like swinging and like, you know, yeah. being uh like it builds to that. Now I'm going to say these names, okay? Uh, Don Amici in Cocoon, Klaus mm -hmm. Maria Brandauer in Out of Africa, William Hickey, Preetzi's Honor, Eric Roberts, Runaway Train, Robert Loja, Jagged Edge. Those were the five actors who received the best supporting actor nominations this same year. There is now, some good stuff in there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Eric, Runaway Train is actually a really good movie. Phenomenal uh, movie, yeah. Yeah, one of the only high points artistically of canon and uh, yeah. Go on, uh, Go on uh, Globus. Globus. Um, Don Amici in Cocoon, I mean, that was clearly a, he won, and that was clearly a, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award. Sure. Uh, I would argue that Wilford Brimley and Hume Cronin had the more challenging roles in that film. Sure. Uh, and and Dennehy is really great in the movie, too. Yeah. Um, William Hickey in Preetzi's Honor, it's a fine kind of dark comedic performance. Right. Uh, I, I saw Out of Africa, not one I cell didn't. in my brain remembers a thing about it. Klaus Werner <laughs> Brandauer is a fine actor. I'm sure he did a good job. And Robert Loja in Jagged Edge. Um, again, like Amici, if I was going to nominate any actor, supporting actor from Jagged Edge, it would have been Peter Coyote. Yeah, as right. As the DA, who, who, was, who was amazing in that movie. And yeah, Robert yeah. Loggio, Robert Loggio was Robert, he was, yeah. he was, he was peak Loggio. And I loved me some Bob Loggio, but that performance is not the, yeah. That, do you want, of that, of that four, I'm not going to take Amici away, even though I, I would have yeah, personally yeah. nominated either Brimley or Cronin. I'm not going to complain that they gave Don Amici a freaking Oscar no, for Cocoon, no. a film that I absolutely love. You know, if, if I can't, if have, aren't there bigger, bigger uh, injustices in the yeah, world? Yeah, I'm not going to die on that hill. But, um, <laughs> but Dennehy should have been nominated. I would have removed Loja and put Dennehy for sure. At least yeah. be nominated for what was a phenomenal year for him. But yeah. he, this film doesn't work if it has. Okay, do you want I'm gonna I'm gonna go down a weird rabbit hole here because I'm gonna bring up a film who the performance of the villain to me ruined the movie. Mm. And that movie is Empire um, Strikes Back. The Cotton no, Club, okay. which came out oh. just the year before this. So I want to take a contemporary film, The Cotton yeah. Club, which was directed by Francis Coppola. There's a lot of good things in the in the Cotton Club. It's not a it's not you know robot jocks, it's not it's not crap. Um, I'm not a huge Richard Gere fan. No, uh, I think he's. I, I and in this film, it was everything I dislike about Richard Gere. Yes, um, <laughs> but it had a great performance by Bob Hoskins uh, and Fred Gwynn is mm -hmm. incredible in the movie. It was very early Nicolas Cage. You know, obviously his uncle was directing him, but very early that um, really good performance by Lonette McKee and Gregory Hines. Uh, of course, um, anytime Tom Waits appears in the movie, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Um, there was a lot of fine performance, but James Rimar, who is a mm -hmm. good, solid character. I mean, he's a talented actor, but he played it so snarling yeah. and so over the top. He made the, the, the gangsters and Dick Tracy look subtle. <laughs> and it ruined the damn movie for me. Yeah, the antagonist of the whole movie is this again. James I mean, a good that's, actor. Li li that's let's that's, be that, 
yeah let's be honest that is that that's a failure of direction right there yeah because it's not he's a he's a talented actor who's been good in other movies yeah he's just so like first of all i wish bob hoskins was the villain because you know mid 80s you know mona lisa era bob hoskins oh yeah that that would have been but bloody sunday Sunday bloody sunday bob hoskins and he's i mean but he's very good in the movie in his role but that that performance by james ramar in the film it does ruin the cotton club for me mm-hmm. and then i think about this film if lawrence kasdan had directed the villain to be this snarling yeah mean son of a bitch and everything like that this film would have fallen apart because you would say how the heck would kevin klein even think about siding with this guy right and it's yeah and it, it, we it, have Dennehy who is un who is i mean Costner steals the movie, but in right. so many ways, uh, Dennehy anchors the movie. And I think that's... He, he does. He's like a giant block of granite yeah. <laughs> that really anchors the entire movie and is the counterweight to what, again, another reason it could have spun off into nonsense is that there's so much great acting and ensemble work on the other side. All the good guys are so strong in the movie, if you don't have a compelling but not mustache-twisting villain, it's just going to tip completely over, and it's going to be, you know, an enjoyable ensemble piece, but not going to be a great movie. And I think his counterbalance makes it, is one of the things that really, as you say, pulls it off. And remember, Lawrence Kasdan was the screenwriter for Raiders, Right, as was Belloc, and right? Belloc's character, another he, very charismatic. You, you totally could, you could see even how Marion could fall for Belloc, treats her better than Indy does, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. there is, yeah, he's collaborating with Nazis. He's also makes it very clear throughout that he doesn't like collaborating with Nazis, not that that's an excuse. Right, but right. But he's he very clearly separates himself from them. It's very savvy screenwriting to make and, you like the villain. And and one of the most charming scenes in the movie is Marion and Belloc laughing and getting drunk together. And then when she's in danger, she goes to Belloc to protect her. Yeah, I mean that there is, and and he's the antagonist. He's the evil Indiana Jones, and yet right. he's and you see, like he steals the idol from him at the beginning and everything, and like and when he meets him in the bar and he says, "Not a very private place for a murder." I mean, he's uh, uh, there's, and again, Paul Freeman's a fine actor and and does a wonderful job in the part, and of course, it's you know the director of Raiders of the Lost Ark had talent, but um, but there was a lot when you can create a villain or an antagonist who is right. charming. Right. And so, the, I mean, I've never made the Belloc Cobb, you know, the, the Belloc Brian Dennehy connection until just now, but right. it's true. That, like that he was, he was playing from some of the same tackle box for Belloc yes. and, and, for this and, and Lando and empire strikes back, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, is basically this type of character, but who pivots in the third act to helping out the good guys. Right. Whereas, you know, Dennehy is the, the one who is to use the empire example. Once he sells out to the empire, he just goes all in with the empire instead of Lando turning back against the empire. But yeah, he, he, specializes in these characters that are sort of scoundrels and you're not sure where they're going to go. Maybe they'll go good. Maybe they'll. Which makes it more compelling, which makes Kevin Klein's character more compelling. And I talked about in one of the earlier episodes, how I've gone back and forth on my feelings of Kevin Klein being cast. This is the first film I ever saw Kevin Klein. And so he carried no baggage with me. Right. I saw it. I had not seen the big chill. It wasn't like, okay, when we're done seeing Wrath of Khan, can we please see the big chill? I still haven't. But, um, but like when you see, it's funny. Should, I, is, should I watch the big chill? I haven't seen, I bet it aged like milk. But I, I also, so. I, I hadn't, I also hadn't seen Sophie's Choice, which was the other big, huge film that he was in before this. 
Um, it's funny how he is a, a, a fine dramatic actor and he's in The Ice Storm, which I think is one of the best dramas of the 1990s. I think two of his best performances, he won an Oscar for a completely over-the-top comedic performance in A Fish Called Wanda. Yeah. And he's also wonderful in, in Dave, which is another really good comedic performances. But he's also a fine dramatic actor um, as well. Um, and so there was a period of time where I was having like, really, this guy is the the rootin' tootin' as tough as gunshot. This 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 right. this Bridgeport, Connecticut yuppie is is uh, you know, and he kind of doesn't sound like he's from the West. He sounds like he's you know, but I've come around to it because if they had like, for example, I've used again, forgive me everyone, I've, I've used this example before, but his is I'm bringing this up specifically because it was his co-star in The Big Chill. Same director, a lot of the same cast members showed up, including Goldblum and Kevin Klein. Um, Tom Berenger was right. in the big show. And on paper, Tom Berenger should be playing this part. He looks like right. a cowboy. We all saw Rustler's Rhapsody. And, um, you know, and he's obviously, you know, a talented actor and would look great on a horse. But when you see someone who looks and sounds like Tom Berenger, you know he won't side with Cobb, right. but if it's someone like Kevin Klein, right, who who you're not quite sure, like doesn't have that baggage, it doesn't seem like the you know the the you know would he side with him, right? And so I I've grown to love the casting of Kevin Klein, uh, even though I've, I had gone back and forth over the years, but I've grown to really really love it. Yeah, um, yeah, so. it's Casden is great at i just watched body heat and he's great you know he's great at taking these characters and putting them in sort of moral quandaries mm -hmm. and you're really not sure is you know william hurt gonna turn out to be good is he not gonna you know it Kasdan's great at that it really making you go like i'm not sure which way this is gonna go yeah 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 this is pete Kasdan. absolutely pete Kasdan. um you know, by the way, I'm just going to bring up uh, this is again another mid '80s film and featured Tom Berenger. Um, I just want—I love when people are creative with casting. And at that point, Tom Berenger was you know handsome leading man type, kind of rugged type, and he played some very heroic parts. And at the same time, Willem Dafoe was playing a lot of kind of like creepy scoundrels. He hadn't played Last Temptation of Christ or Mississippi Burning yet, but he had done like To Live and Die in L.A. was a big film yeah. that he was in. And, you know, he was he because he looks so he's got this great face, which is one of the reasons why I can't believe they put a mask on him in Spider-Man. He looks like the freaking no. Green Goblin. Take the exactly. Helmet you know, you, why can't why don't you, you might as well have cast Richard well, Jenkins. They, to be Jenkins honest, they probably that. they probably saved a, a ton of money by putting that mask on. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But <laughs> either way, um, <laughs> when he would be doing that thing in the mirror to himself, so, oh man, he does look like Green Goblin. Uh, but yeah, anyway, totally. But um, when Oliver Stone did Platoon, he cast Tom Berenger as the, the scary, creepy guy and cast Willem Dafoe as the heroic one because it went totally against the baggage that they carried. And it worked out really, really well in that movie. Whatever you think of Platoon, I have mixed feelings about that. That sure, movie. sure. Um, I, I'm a fan of of several of Oliver Stone films, um, especially JFK and Nixon. But um, I have I have I have mixed feelings about Platoon. But but obviously sure. a well a well made. Film. That's garbage. Like no, I said I. No. I, I I have mixed people. feelings about Scarface too. Another, you know, Oliver. I have, I have a I have a lot of mixed feelings about Scarface. <laughs> you know. Talk about one note. It's like that. They put that, that bird that dips into the, the, the water cup and they just put that in front of a piano. One note, one note, one note. I mean, it, it, the clips of the film are fun, but when you try to sit down and watch that three hour movie, you're yeah. like, okay, okay. Exactly. You, you're like, like, look, can I have one scene where Pacino's like, I like having eggs? Like, okay. <laughs> And there, and you got Robert Loggia and Al Pacino having a scream off, yes. which has its charms. Has Just its not, th not three way, hours of it. I will say this is not Scarface minute, but I will say the best scene in Scarface is Robert Loggia begging for his life. Yeah. To to Pacino because in that scene. 
the two of them kind of whisper at each other. So it's like you, they, you would think this is the moment where they both be like, but he's like, oh, Tony, I never. And then, and of course, he shoots him. He shoots Harris Eulen. And he said, what about Ernie? And this poor guy, Ernie, is there. And he says, you want a job, Ernie? Sure, Tony. Okay, call me tomorrow. And the other guy who had a gun held on him says, hey, man, you got a job. And it's, that's the best scene in the movie. That's the, that's the rest of the film is just people screaming at each other. But like, <laughs> and they raise, I mean, look, I'm not a huge De Palma fan, but I, you got to tip your hat when, when it's due. And it's just, everyone's being killed. And the, the other guy, Ernie, is there. And he says, what about Ernie? And they stare it down. The music is building up. You want a job, Ernie? <laughs> okay, come by. Call me tomorrow. Uh, that's that. I'm not a fan of that movie, but that scene is. <laughs> so you know what, what I got to do? One of these days, you and I got to sit down. This could be a whole podcast. We're this. We're wrapping up this. Don't Great worry. scenes and bad movies. Like, like, yeah, scenes that were so much better than the films they're in. Oh yeah, that's a great idea for a absolutely. There's a movie called Airheads that features friends. I'm friends with the guy who wrote that. Okay, well, I'm, I'm gonna. I, it, it's not. A, I don't think it's a great movie. No, no. Um, and Joe Montana, who was a guest on my podcast, um, huge Chicago Cubs fan. Um, the the premise of the film is a a bunch of guys take a radio station hostage to play their music and have their message heard. A heavy metal band, right? A heavy metal a band, hard rock band. Yeah. Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi. Adam Sandler before he was Adam Brendan Sandler. Fraser casting as the lead singer of a heavy metal band is one of the worst castings of all time. Yes, in a film that had Adam Sandler right there. Yes, um, right. And um, and Joe Montana plays the sort of the the Johnny Fever type of, uh, of DJ. DJ. And there is a moment when and there's a moment in that film. This is the scene that is it's better than the film it's in. When he's saying, we need to be heard, we need to be heard. And Joe Montani pushes the mic to them. Okay, you are now heard. What do you have to say? And then they kind of looked around. And then he says, well, don't put me on the spot, man. (laughs) (laughs) And it's clear. And then Steve Buscemi says, what do you expect to make a speech? Who do you think he is? Sting? (laughs) And uh, the film itself is uh, hit or miss. But I think about that all the time. <laughs> oh, no, there's another great one. Um, it's a movie called The Messenger, directed by Luc Besson, and it's about Joan of Arc. Oh and my God. there's a scene, not a great movie. It's 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 interesting because it's it's like what I liked about Oliver Stone's Nixon is that they didn't make a bi- they didn't they didn't make a biopic, they just went bananas. <laughs> okay. And there is a character who is either a monk or a ghost. Or Joan of Arc's conscience. We don't know who the hell he is. Played by Dustin Hoffman, and he's grilling Joan of Arc in the cell, saying like, "I saw signs from God." Said like, well, what, "What kind of signs from God?" And he said, "Well, I I felt the wind. No, that was the wind. I heard the bells. No, those are bells." He said, "I saw a sword in a field." No, that was a sword in the field. Well, a sword of field couldn't just get there. I said, you're right. A sword of field couldn't just get there. Let's think about the ways a sword could appear in the field. And there's this amazing montage of like a guy riding a horse, a sword falls on a guy has a sword, right? The sword goes right. And like there's one right after another. And he says, and that doesn't even take into account the inexplicable. And you see a guy walk in the field, and just throws a sword in the middle of it. He said, said, and out of an infinite number of possibilities, you chose this. And you see this clouds open up and a sword being placed on the ground. And it's an unbelievably great scene about confirmation bias. That's and like, amazing. And and the film itself is a mess. But that's like a, I've shown that scene to my kids about like just you know about uh, confirmation bias and wanting things to be true. Right. And, and and say, well, you can't explain how it did. Well, that doesn't mean you've. It doesn't make your wild explanation any more true. Right. Right. Oh my God! We've talked fifty minutes, and we've gone off the rails. But do you know what? That's what happens here. And we that's did, great. We talked a lot about um, Silverado here. Um, we mentioned in the last minute. You don't really, you don't, you don't, you're not on Facebook. You're not on Twitter or Instagram. You don't do any of that. That's why you're so calm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's why you're so goddamn calm. 
I love it, man. And uh, you follow me at Sully Baseball on Twitter, Sully Baseball Podcast and Instagram. And follow my And podcast. I do. Yep. And follow Locked On MLB, which is my podcast. And I don't know what point of the season this is going to be dropping. Um, but you and I are also rabid baseball fans. And you, we've been to many, many games together. It's weird that the Dodgers are in last place 42 games out, right? Yeah, well, it's just like finally we're getting that 1912 World Series reunion, Red Sox, Giants. We're going to see it. Final, <laughs> now, that we're, now that we're halfway through the season yeah. when this podcast airs. Man, Chris Sales uh, came off the, the injured list, and he's like, he may win 30 games this year. He may. <laughs> 30 games. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable what's happening. Um, oh, and by the way, just so you know, if you happen to be using the Facebook uh, go follow us at the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener Saloon on Facebook, where we bring up episodes. But also, like, I'll post the clips from the Messenger and from Airheads. That's a lot of fun things could be posted uh, on there in the uh, You Want a Job Ernie scene from Scarface. Um, uh, also, follow us on Twitter at Silverado MXM, obviously, minute by minute. Um, and if you want to follow the podcast and subscribe, uh, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or the main site, which is SilveradoMinute.com. There are so many of the Movie by Minute podcasts that are available at MovieByMinutes.com, including Bull Durham Minute, hosted by me, uh, Indiana Jones Minute, host, which was the f- one that was my gateway drug to this, hosted by uh, Jerry, Pete, and Tom. And I always make sure not to say Tom and Jerry when I list their names. Uh, the Star Wars Minute, and about 50,000 specific ones hosted by Jim O'Kane, who will be on our next bunch of minutes, uh, starting minutes 66 through 70. Jim O'Kane, the host of Rocketeer Minute, uh, Apollo 13 Minute, Airport Minute. Uh, I've done a bunch of them with Jim O'Kane, and Jim O'Kane did Bodur Minute as well. He's a great guy, and he's the one who really organized this Movie by Minute podcast and the best years of our lives, Movie by Minute podcast and North by Northwest. Uh, there are all these ones that we've done, um, and it's been, he's a great guy, and he's just, a, a, he's like the godfather of the Movie by Minute world. And so the the next episode will be Minute 66, hosted by Jim O'Kane. And this has been a great fun week. I had my solo show, Brother Scott Michael uh, Pomerick, and, uh, Mr. Gregory Francis Lee. Thank I'm you Paul. so much. It's yeah. always uh, an unbelievable, uh, unbelievably great time to do these with you. <laughs> well, and then we got we to get doing another one. Uh, but thanks so much for listening. If you ever have a Space Invaders uh, minute by minute, let's do that too. All right, let's go. Let's imagine breaking that down. Imagine living with that for months and months and months. Let's <laughs> you live with this movie. I mean, you live with these movies when you do this. When I did Bull Durham, I chose that because I think it's a funny, charming movie, and I wanted to spend time with those characters. Imagine doing, like, you know, a the Wrath of God, you know? You're just depressed for months on end. Or watching Space Invaders over and over and over again until eventually you're screaming like Malcolm McDowell in A Clockwork Orange. It's a sin, it's a sin, it's a sin. And no better way to break down the silver arm is i'm trying to wrap this joke oh man please join us here next time my name is paul francis sullivan please call me sully this has been the silverado minute Yee-haw! give us a yeehaw buddy. put some more into it Yee-haw!